he went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Before we start out this week, I want to give you all an important reminder of one of the themes of Deutero-Isaiah, Isaiah chapters 40 through 55, which we studied all winter long, which is Israel in exile was constantly and incessantly arguing with Yahweh over the terms of their redemption and salvation and with how it was going to happen through a Gentile king, no less. Oh, the horror. Oh, the humiliation. But we're going to see that big time this week, okay? As Yeshua upends all norms of first century Jewish social decency. Actually, just decency in any culture at that point. We're also going to tackle some uncomfortable assumptions that people make about the situation that are not actually supported in the text. But we make those assumptions for the exact same reasons that the scribes of the Pharisees were protesting. Because this makes us very uncomfortable when read without those assumptions. Hi, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years' worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it called Context for Kids, and I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com, and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. I'm not prejudiced. They all teach us how to become more like Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, and to preach the gospel to the lost. And so since that is job number one, you know, you can just use whatever you like. Unless you're driving, then I most certainly do not want you following along in any Bible. Anyway, some of you people on your cell phones just stare at me. <laughs> so, last summer, actually... Gosh, it's been almost a year. It was like it was like ten months ago at this point, ten and a half months ago, because it was July. God hit me with this bolt of lightning about today's passage because of something that Pastor Mark Horn mentioned in his book, The Victory According to Mark, which I also told you, talked to you about last week. Now he said 
Jesus's message was in great measure an invitation to a party. It was a virtual it was virtually a dinner club roaming around ancient Palestine. As we will see in the coming weeks, this is absolutely true. But my brain just sort of exploded when I when I read that and I dropped all of my Mark studies and did nothing except read the Bible from um Matthew. I started in Matthew and I read all the way through to Second Chronicles in order to see first what Yeshua did and said in reference to food and table fellowship. And then I started over again in Genesis and just kept reading. It was almost all I did for six weeks. And, you know, sorry, honey, for all the unimaginative dinners and the few cheaters that I did that, yeah, processed food, <laughs> sorry. And um, when I came out of it, I saw very clearly for the first time in my life how integral, integral, the food and the sharing of food has been to God's message and ministry to us from the absolute beginning. The Bible literally begins with a prepared feast in the garden and ends with a feast in Revelation. You ever notice that? The Gospels are packed full of references, some overt and um, some subtle, to the upcoming messianic banquet and who will and will not be invited and and it's some insanely controversial stuff which is why the scribes of the pharisees were so incredibly upset about what yeshua was doing in his fellowshipping and and who he fed all right we'll sit at a table in a cafeteria and eat with absolute strangers we'll eat with anyone that wouldn't have happened in the ancient world where, where who you ate with was a sign of who you were accepting on a very intimate level. Now, the other book I want to specifically point out this week is one that was recommended to me about two months ago, and I just tore through it. Incredible book on this subject called Contagious Holiness by a scholar named Graham A. Cole. It's one of the NSBT books, and that stands for New Studies in Biblical Theology, and I have quite a few of them. I call them the gray books, because they're gray. And every single one of them that I have read is absolutely excellent. I actually based my last book, um, Image-Bearing Identity, Image-Bearing Idolatry and the New Creation, in great part on Richard, Lint, Richard Lint's Identity and Idolatry, which is also from that series, and that's my favorite one out of that series, so I, I recommend reading that one. That's just mind-blower right there. They put out some amazing materials. So, last week I pointed out that we are now in a section of Mark called the Controversy Dialogues. Mark chapter 1, just to review, was largely about Yeshua being commissioned and dealing with the forces of Satan. Um, you know, whether it be actual demons or, or sickness or oppression or, or all the things that keep us in bondage, okay? But these passages here all have him involved with increasingly serious controversies where he's dealing with people. So last week the controversy was uh, with the scribes, and it doesn't say if they were the scribes of the Pharisees or the Sadducees, so, you know, that was interesting to speculate on um but 
he was in this controversy with the scribes over whether or not Yeshua could pronounce someone forgiven, which he proved he could by healing a paralytic. And he played by their own rules in doing so. The, their own rules, their own prejudices and, and beliefs. So this week... Oh yeah, but you know, so they couldn't say anything, right? But they were thinking he was a blasphemer. They just wouldn't say it out loud, and he called them on it. So this week... So, but a silent attack is, is often better than in your face, right? <laughs> At least you don't know. Now, this week his opponents are going to be more open about their opposition and challenge. Each week the tension and consequences will grow. That's why Paul... Paul... That's why, that's why Mark did these groupings, Paul. <laughs> um, that's why Mark did these groupings, not to show a chronology of what happened, but to thematically bunch different areas of his ministry and life so we can see these patterns. Not everything is about dry history and chronology, and in fact, that's quite the modern obsession. Okay, We prefer it that way. But it can obscure the many themes, okay? And, and I might add that we also have a mini theme among the controversies, and this one concerns food. In fact, three of the five controversies concern food. Who you eat with, you know, who one eats with, when one should eat, when one should fast, and whether it's lawful to demand that the poor go hungry on the Sabbath. Now, let's go back to the text and, and get on with this this week. All right, so we're starting in, uh, this is Mark 2, verse 13 this week. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. All right, so last week, gave the location as the small fishing village of Capernaum in which it is estimated that about 1,500 people lived. In ancient thought, the sea represented, well, it represented different things, but in every culture, represented a place of chaos and death. And not shocking, given the dangers of traveling by sea and the unpredictability of the sea in general. But Yeshua always, often goes to such places in order to be alone. To the wilderness, Eremos, you remember the word that we've been needing to memorize here. Um, the wilderness is another place of chaos, and it's where Yeshua had his victory against Satan, and where he often went to escape the press of the crowds to pray. This is in stark contrast to historical Israel, who failed in the wilderness repeatedly, don't we all, right? Or is that just me? I didn't think so. Um, but uh, also on the shore of the Amsuf, the Sea of Reeds, also called the Red Sea, um, in some translations, where they refused to trust in God's deliverance when Pharaoh's army pursued them to the seashore. But Yeshua, the perfect representative of Israel, succeeds in the very places where they failed, and not only that, but the people seek him out in those places. They're willing to go to him in the desert. Um, you know, like we're supposed to do when we're on our own wilderness journeys and surrounded by chaos, right? 
and it was there that they came to him and he taught them, which was a pain for him, no doubt. But what we should all do when we have our trials, right? I mean, it's it's one thing to say it, and then, then we're in the trial and we forget. It's like, oh no, I'm being oppressed. But um, no, it's, something's happening and God wants us to cling to him. That's Boy, and there's a big theme that I, when I was going through looking at the food and looking at God's provision, I kept coming across, you know, wait for me, cling to me, cleave to me, you know, trust in me. Anyway, verse uh, 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. One thing that just drives you nuts in the English is all the he's and him's, and you're going, which one are they talking about? And sometimes it's not that much clearer in the Greek either. So lots of stuff here. First, this verse isn't really tied in any way to the one before it. It's, it isn't as though they had a tax collector booth there on the shores of Galilee, right? So this happens sometime later. Could be, you know, hours later, could be days later. We don't know, but... Geographically, the first century Roman province of Syria was made of a bunch of smaller regions under the leadership of various governors. Now, the ones we are interested in for Bible studies are, of course, Judea in the south, which is where Jerusalem was under the direct authority of Rome by a Pontius Pilate. There was Idumea to the south of that, where Herod's ancestors... Uh, um, the Edomites were from, to the north of Judea was Samaria, and to the east of them, across the Jordan River, was Perea. Now, to the north was the Galilee, and to the north of Samaria uh, was the Galilee, and to the west of the Sea of Galilee uh, to the, was the... Um, the west of the, to the west of the sea was Galantis. Okay, I, I think that, I actually, uh, Galanitis, sorry. It sounds like a disease. I always pronounce it wrong because I always miss that other I in there. Galanitis. I mean, doesn't it? It's probably not pronounced that way, but way it's written, it looks like a disease. I went to Israel and I picked up a bad case of colonitis. Now, Herod Antipas mistranslated in the Bible as king when he was a tetrarch because the word Basileus can mean many things. But in this case, he was just a ruler and never was made king by the Roman Senate who had to approve such things. Only his father, Herod the Great, was a king and uh, later Herod Agrippa was made anyway um herod antipas ruled over the galilee and perea and so that was the north okay and and to and also a small area to the um to the east of um of the jordan and his brother philip ruled over uh galanitis galanitis probably <laughs> And frankly, being ruled over by that family was a terrible disease. Remember I said that sounded like Galenitis? Being ruled over by the Herods was a terrible disease. It was. Heck, being part of that family was usually a fatal disease. 
Now, the border between Galanitas uh, was the Jordan River, north of the Sea of Galilee. Um, the border between Galanitas and, uh, sorry, and the Galilee was uh, the Jordan River, north of the Sea of Galilee. And so this wasn't exactly where one would expect to find an import-export tax collector. Right? I mean, a, a tax farmer who was bilking ordinary citizens out of their money. This would be this would be a specialist dealing with um, traveling merchants, all right? But still, that would hardly matter to the Jews because it meant that this man worked for Rome, and he would have been considered a collaborator dealing with merchants who were also morally suspect, and with Romans who weren't just morally suspect but outright condemned by their own actions. Now, Levi was, to put it mildly, a traitor to the Jews. That's how people would have seen it. He was doubtless born into the job, and so he probably came from a long line of shamed people. Rich, perhaps, but without honorable social stature, which doesn't leave him with anyone nice to hang around with. I want to read some accounts about text collectors. I think actually I'm only going to read one uh, from the era Plutarch in On Curiosity, a.k.a. it's also called The Busybody, said this. But how ungrateful, and, and he's comparing them to gossips. He's comparing gossips to tax collectors because it's probably the worst thing you could think of. But how ungrateful is it to mankind to have their evils inquired into appears from hence that some have chosen rather to die then disclose a secret disease to their physician. Suppose, then, that Herophilus, or Aristratus, or Asclepius himself, when he was here on earth, should have gone about from house to house, inquiring whether any there had a fistula in anno or cancer in utero to be cured. Although such a curiosity as this might in them seem more tolerable, from the charity of their design and the benefit intended by their art. Yet who would not rebuke the saucy officiousness of that quack who should, unsent for, thus impudently pry those into those privy distempers, which the modesty or perhaps the guilt of the patient would blush or abhor to discover, though it would for the sake of a cure. Okay, But those that are of this curious and busy humor cannot forbear searching into these, and other ills, too, that are of a more secret nature. And what makes the practice more exceedingly odious and detestable, the intent is not to remedy, but to expose them to the world. He's talking about gossips now, okay? It is not ill-taken if the searchers and officers of the customs do inspect goods openly imported, but only when with a design of being vexatious and troublesome, they rip up the unsuspected packets of private passengers, and yet even in this they are law the they are by law authorized to do. And it is sometimes to their loss if they don't. But curious and meddlesome people will ever be inquiring into other men's affairs, without leave or commission, though it be to the great neglect and damage of their own. There we go comparing tax collectors to gossips, but in doing so, 
kind of tells you the things that these customs tax inspectors could get away with. So they would not only, um, you know, go through what the merchants were declaring, but, um, yeah, so they would not only legally go through open imports, you know, and that's no shock there, but that they're ripping open the packages of private citizens without having cause or suspicion. But even in doing that, Plutarch still considers them to be superior to gossips, and I would totally have to agree. Anyway, Josephus, so we are going to do two. Josephus also writes about a tax collector in Wars of the Jews, 2.14, but you know, but positively, okay, about a certain tax collector named John who worked diligently on behalf of the synagogue in Caesarea within a very complex, intense political situation. But um, then Josephus was also considered to be a Roman collaborator, so that might make him more or less objective. More likely, this was a tax collector who did genuinely care about the synagogue because he was shelling out his own money in bribes for the sake of it. So, tax collectors come in different flavors, but they were still considered to be collaborators. And, um, okay, so his name is Levi, right? And there's a lot of people who make a big deal about that and say, oh, wow, he was a priest. That's a priestly name. He should have been over and working in the temple, but he couldn't survive, so he was resorting to tax collection. Okay. Were all the men in scripture named... Um, Joseph, descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh? <laughs> One of Joseph's ancestors mentioned in Matthew 1 was Zadok. Does that mean that Joseph, Yeshua's adoptive father, was a priest? No. We have him as a direct uh, descendant of the tribe of Judah. Mary's genealogy can also be traced all the way back to King David, making her from the tribe of Judah. But her ancestors included two Levi's and a Joseph. Names were names and didn't belong to any one tribe. There's this, there's this tendency out there to try and make the Gospels more Jewish and more relevant than they already are, and I'm telling you that that's just plain impossible. The Gospels are as Jewish as it is, as it is possible for any document to be. You know, we don't have to get overly clever with them. We don't have to twist them. There were many Jews out there named Levi who were not priestly. I imagine that most of the patriarchs had like a zillion namesakes wandering around first century Israel. Now, Levi was a tax collector, and probably because his father had been one, and his father before that. Reading anything more definitive into it is really just unnecessary and probably quite misleading. It's a distraction. And I've seen it used by folks who are trying to guilt more money out of people, all right? So... The verse says that Yeshua is walking by and he sees Levi as he is sitting at his customs booth and that he called to him to follow me. Levi rose up and followed him and if you've been following over the last four weeks you might have gotten super excited there when you heard the word rise. Okay, you um, you might have even shouted, Agiro! But I'm going to have to disappoint you. This is not resurrection language word. This is a uh, Anastas, which is the word for standing up. You know, that's why I end up using Logo software so much to check out these words. That's not to say this isn't interesting for other reasons. Why did Levi get up 
and leave his source of income to follow Yeshua. Okay, well, we're, <laughs> I'm not going to be up. Actually, I'll, I'll, I'll do the first one here. I'll do the first one. One, Yeshua knows Levi's name. Probably everyone in town did. They probably spat when they mentioned it. So this part is not shocking. But I mean, he called him. He called him. That's going to be more shocking than, than, than you would normally otherwise think. Because this entire, this entire thing is scandalous. People would have been whispering and just horrified. Anyway, we will be back in just a few minutes. Okay, so welcome back to the second half of Character and Context, and this week we are um, we're discussing Contagious Holiness in the Sinner's Dinner. <laughs> I know, it's a, it's a silly name, that's just kind of who I am, right? Anyway, uh, when, we, when we left off, we were talking about why did Levi get up and leave his source of income to follow Yeshua? And so, number one, we just is just repeat... Yeshua knows Levi's name. Probably everyone in the town did. They probably spat when they mentioned it, okay? Um, two, Yeshua was the most famous person in Capernaum. Probably of all time. I mean, seriously, right? Of course, Levi knew who Yeshua was already. A miracle worker slash exodus slash healer in a fishing town of 1,500 people? Yeah. Everyone knew Yeshua and what he was claiming and what he was doing. Three, when you are a Jewish social outcast and the most amazing, law-abided, respected Jew in the city calls you in words of acceptance and invitation, you just go. Because remember, at this point, um, the opposition um, had just barely started, Okay. So he's still just wildly popular with the people. Now, Yeshua was undoubtedly the first respectable person to ever give Levi the time of day or to associate with him willing. And I'm including when he was a kid because people took it out on people's kids, okay? Everyone avoided Levi except for the other outcasts who benefited from his table. Oh, sure. You know, he'd get the sinners to eat with him. Other tax collectors, Herodians, prostitutes, you know, all the Roman collaborators, uh, collaborators would enjoy Levi's company. But this was a man who didn't fit into this world at all. I mean, Yeshua, I'm talking about. Yeshua was a man who didn't fit into this community, into this world at all. I'm just... I'm having a day here. Now, Levi didn't ask any questions because Yeshua was offering him acceptance. There was nothing more important in in their world than acceptance by an honorable person. And at this point, Yeshua was still on top with the ordinary people who made up the town of Capernaum, a bunch of ordinary people. And he had just offered a place in his social world to an outcast. We just can't even imagine. I mean, not even those of us who were terribly bullied 
as children because I was. I was terribly believed by boys, by girls and boys, all right, and, and even by adults. So I know about bullying and I know about rejection, but uh, I could always move somewhere else and it would be, you know, I could, I could start again. Not when you're not in the ancient world, no. Now, verse 15. And as, here's a bunch of he's, it's like, uh, which make all the debates. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Um, but, um, pretty sure this was Levi's house. Okay. Now we kind of read over this and create a fictional scenario in our minds. And actually, I think one of the other gospels specifically says it's Levi's house. Why didn't I look that up? I don't know. Now we kind of read all over this. Yeah. And we create a fictional scenario in our minds because this is just so awful to contemplate. I have heard and have said myself years and years ago that Yeshua was preaching hellfire and damnation and they were all repenting. But there's a problem. The text doesn't say that. And even if he was doing that, there is still the problem that he is sitting at the same table, actually reclining, with sinners. There's no way to get around that. There was no greater intimacy in the ancient world than table fellowship. Sharing a table, breaking the same bread together, and dipping into the same bowl in an age without hand sanitizer and modern cleanliness standards, and dare I mention no toilet paper? Well, it was just a profound expression of acceptance. You didn't do it lightly. A common theme in Jewish literature was and is the great messianic banquet in the world to come where the faithful Jews would share a table with Messiah and the forefathers, the patriarchs. No outsiders allowed. No unclean. No sinners. Certainly none of the wicked people. The Qumran sect actually believed that there would only be themselves and the greatest of the great at Messiah's table, but they weren't exactly known for their humility either. So, uh, we have a table, probably, you know, at Levi's home, because he was wealthier than your average Capernaum bear, and it was a common occurrence to throw a party in honor of important life events. Yeshua isn't standing over them. He's reclining with them. So are his disciples. It suggests but doesn't demand a symposium-like setting that might have been possible and even probably depending on how Hellenized Levi's family was. What we have no reason to suspect is that some of the more objectionable quote-unquote entertainment that often accompanied these gatherings, you know, was, was there. So we see no references to prostitutes here, actually, only to sinners. It's Matthew and not Mark who lumps um, tax collectors in with prostitutes, but Mark actually never specifically mentions prostitutes. We will have the sinful woman who anoints Yeshua in uh, Mark 14, but we're never alerted to her profession if she even had one. We don't know. Now, sorry for all the sniffing. <laughs> it's the agricultural season here in Idaho. So, uh, so there's something I want you to notice. 
It doesn't come up here, but it does in a lot of other table fellowship accounts in the Gospels. Even at other people's homes, when they are putting on a feast, Yeshua acts as though he is the host and not the guest. Frequently being the one to break bread and offer the prayers and do other hosty things. There's a reason for this. We're supposed to be picturing the messianic banquet whenever he sits down with people to eat. Messiah will be the host of that banquet in the future, and so he acts as host even in other people's homes. Pretty cool, huh? So, the most important thing we have here is that Yeshua, by going to Levi's house and reclining with other tax collectors and sinners, a menagerie of outcasts, has just committed no less than a revolutionary act. The controversies are all marked with revolutionary countercultural acts. First, he declares forgiveness unthinkable. Now he is seemingly defiling himself by eating with the unacceptable. I want to share how serious this was, all right? Here's a quote from Nakilta Amalek 3. Let a man not associate with sinners even to bring them to Torah. Wow, that is super cold. Not even to bring them to Torah? So what this is saying that some untouchable people aren't even encouraged to repent. It's like, stay there, okay? We're not coming for you. That's the opposite of what Yeshua is doing here and throughout his ministry. By preemptively accepting them, he's inviting them to the table and to repentance and to share in his holiness. Craig L. Blomberg calls this contagious holiness. Yeshua goes and eats with the untouchables and instead of coming out defiled, he changes at least Levi's life, hopefully more of them. We hope so and we want it to be true, but the text does not give us even the slightest hint. These people absolutely vanish from the account after this shared meal. Evidently, we aren't supposed to know what happened with them. That's part of the uncomfortable uncertainty that we have to accept in this account of Yeshua doing the, um, the socially and religiously unthinkable. He didn't just break a taboo. He's saying the taboo is dead wrong in the first place. Now, so now I hope this is a bit clearer when they say, and this is verse 13, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and, uh, and tax collectors, told to or said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Notice they didn't go to Yeshua but to his disciples. They're still being kind of passive-aggressive and sneaky here, not daring to openly oppose him. They're disrespecting him by approaching his students instead of approaching him. It's one step up the confrontation ladder from just thinking the accusations without actually speaking them. But this isn't an innocent question. In an honor-shame society, this is flat-out accusation and a challenge. Yeshua laid down the revolutionary act and the scribes of the Pharisees as opposed to the unaffiliated scribes last week. Um, you know, you know, so these scribes of the Pharisees, um, this means that um, they're scribes who ascribe to the tenets of Phariseeism and are probably their teachers of the law, maybe, 
And, and so will the scribes respond to Yeshua's revolutionary act with a challenge to his disciples? A challenge that his disciples aren't going to get a chance to answer, and likely they were just as shocked as anyone else. I mean, fish were taxed. Possibly by Levi himself. So he was not on their list of favorite people because, you know, up to this point, it's just been the four fishermen. They were probably biting their tongues when Levi got the call and, you know, and even more appalled when he followed along with them. Oh, the horror of it all. <laughs> they were, you know, they were the in-group and now all of a sudden there were too many people in, or at least the wrong types of people. Yeah, it, it's quite possible that they didn't see the irony of how far beneath Yeshua they were in the first place, so they couldn't put into context that compared to Yeshua, they weren't much better than Levi. It's like a carpenter ant telling a sugar ant how short he is when they're both standing next to Goliath the giant. Kind of funny, right? We do the exact same thing. So, they get asked, Hey dudes, your teacher's not observing the appropriate social boundaries that we've all agreed on. And it's all the worse because he's a teacher and he should be a better example for all of you by, well, well, being more like us decent folks who know not to associate with this sort of rabble. Peter was asked the same kind of question in Acts 11.3. And this was by followers of Yeshua. Ah... Uh, Starting in verse 1, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party were absolutely thrilled and praised God and danced in the streets. The Gentiles are coming! The Gentiles are coming! <laughs> Actually, not so much. Let's see what they really said. They criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Priorities, right? But this is why Peter had to be given that vision in Acts 10. Even though he'd eaten with Levi and his merry band of tax collectors and sinners, that was one thing because they were still Jews. This was another matter entirely. According to the Talmud, Gentile women are considered nidah, or to have menstrual-level ritual impurity from birth. There are all sorts of rulings about not being able to eat foods or drink beverages that were touched by gentle hand, Gentile hands in those times. Among the ultra-Orthodox, some of these pro prohibitions uh, still remain today. Now, Peter had to be told not to call unclean what God has made clean. And, of course, Peter goes on to say at the end of the chapter that he has realized that God was not talking about animals, but about people. We don't call people inherently unclean. Although I've seen people do it and mess around with these sorts of insults directed towards other believers, and that is dangerous territory right there. Let me tell you, let's if God's declared somebody unclean, you don't get to call them anything else. And you don't know who God has declared clean just because of whether they agree with you or disagree with you. So don't do it. Now, let's go back to this question posed to the disciples. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Make no mistake, this was confrontational and no simple question. And I don't know if Yeshua heard it or it was relayed to him, but the answer was, verse 17, And when Yeshua heard it, he said to them, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came to call the righteous, or I came, to, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, the first part of this comeback is a well-known Greco-Roman proverb. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And, and they would have absolutely agreed to this. I mean, who wouldn't, right? It's a no-brainer. Nothing controversial about this statement. But then he turns it over on them by saying he came to call sinners, not the righteous. A healer makes people whole, which is what he did to the demon-oppressed men in the local synagogue. You know, by the way, those scribes were probably not locals any more than the ones last week would have been, okay? Um, with Peter's mother-in-law and, and, and the fever and, and the leper and the paralytic, he made them all whole. What he is really saying here is it's the responsibility of a doctor to be among the sick who need him. So it is the responsibility of the Messiah, Yeshua. Of course, he hadn't called himself the Messiah yet. It is the responsibility of the Messiah to be among sinners who need him. What we don't know is the tone of his voice when he said the word righteous. We really and truly wanted to be so sarcastic, right? Because these guys are committed to their own comfort zone and not to the kingdom of God. Of course, they, they believed the exact opposite. Maybe irony was there and maybe not. I like to imagine it, but then I also have to apply it to me when I don't want to associate with certain people because I hate their sins worse than their sins. So maybe I am quote-unquote righteous too. <laughs> so... To wrap up this week, I want to talk about the truly important ramification of this revolutionary act. I want to repeat that bit from Melkilta Amalek 3. Let a man not associate with sinners even to bring them to the Torah. Wow. But Yeshua, his actions say, no. This is exactly who you should associate with and exactly why you should do it. Sick folks need doctors. Sinners need God. Period. Uh, Paul. Paul also talks about this. And he says that there are immoral people that we should not associate with. But it's believers who are immoral. We have an obligation to associate with immoral people out in the world who do not know the hope and salvation we've found. How else will they find it, too, uh, unless we help them? Okay, um, this is, uh, this is 1 Corinthians, I didn't write it, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindlered not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? 
it is not those inside the church whom you is it, I'm sorry is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge god judges those outside purge the evil person from among you this is a real hard word when we break it down god judges those on the outside we judge those on the inside and i know this is hard but the passage is clear fornicators porn addicts and i speak as, as a former porn addict myself okay greedy people drunks thieves idolatry as it would have been in paul's time no longer exists in the west really we call a lot of things idolatry that actually aren't if you study idolatry you know what it is um believers who do these things are not to be coddled we're tolerated hey you know i mean like i said i used to be a porn addict for over 20 years the hard stuff even stuff you can't imagine i gave it up cold turkey at the cross all right i struggled with my thoughts but i gave it up i was working my way toward total freedom that's all anything we can do that's all any of us can do all right work toward total freedom but we have this society nowadays where people are so focused on pleasure and comfort that they prize them above the gospel and addictions of all sorts have run rampant in the body because we no longer value the community and we have become grossly self-absorbed this stuff is no longer the exception but the rule people who dislike anxiety i mean everyone dislikes anxiety hunger or even the illusion of hunger discomfort uncertainty to the point where we can't cope with them as as people used to have to learn to we want shortcuts and so we we turn to pornography illicit sex in movies and in real life uh, we hoard possessions when others go without we drink we smoke we're caffeine addicts yeah that's right i i i mm -hmm. and i can say that because oh, i don't drink caffeine anymore i can't for health reasons but now i'm going to get mine we overeat and we are revilers that word means to speak abusively been on social media lately looking at some of the mask debates so i'm recording this on uh on the third of june it's disgusting you would think we were dealing with an actual sin issue with how abusive people are being over it on both sides although honestly as somebody who i wear masks in places where masks are required or it seems to be the culture of the place and i don't where they're where they're not at this point but i'll tell you something the people who are anti-mask are being vile some of them not all of them but some of them are just and they're burning their bridges over what because you don't like that another person wears a mask stop it stop it we can't divide over this kind of stuff the enemy wins anything you're trying to fight man if you're willing to divide with a brother over masks then you're part of the problem and i i you know what i'm pleading with you stop and all of these ridiculous things that we fight over remember who the enemy is it's not each other unless we decide to be the enemy and divisive people are being the enemy.
all right? If they're reviling, if they can't just hold a little conversation, then um, then they're reviling, and then they're becoming the enemy. They're doing the enemy's work, you know? And it's a hard word, but it is right there. Paul's talking about it. The people who do these things shouldn't be enabled and coddled because it destroys the community and the witness of the cross when we are just as much wrapped up in carnal and comfort-focused behavior, comfort-obsessed behavior, as the rest of the world. Community was everything to them, and so they had to work at it. Nowadays, we have grown so feeble because we can do quite nicely on our own. But we suffer more for it when we do. Even introverts like me, who would have not even existed a few hundred years ago because you needed other people to survive, introversion is a preference that I, that I have the luxury to indulge in, and I do more than I should. It isn't a positive thing, no matter how uncomfortable socializing makes me, or whatever my baggage is, or my reasoning. I can guarantee you that if we came down to the nuclear apocalypse or something, which hopefully will never happen, that I would get over it, and I would start networking with other people, and I would find that I'm not that uncomfortable as it is. It's a preference, okay? Now, next week... We will be covering the third controversy when it is and is not appropriate to fast. And we're going to talk about the that old torn cloak and those new wineskins. And uh, first mention of Yeshua as the bridegroom. Really exciting stuff. And if you guys are listening after I just, you know, thumped everybody over the mess, <laughs> then, I, then I salute you. <laughs> Well done. I will talk to you next week.